You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. A break from our regular programming for this special episode, Raven's Reviews. Yes, this is your second time on the show. So let's talk about, you are actually a forensic anthropologist. Let's talk about that just a little bit. Okay. Yeah, first of all, tell me just, I know that you've been doing this a very, very, very long time. Um, So what just, what kind of inspired you to want to even get into this work in the first place? Biological archaeologist by training, a bioarchaeologist. And uh, my PhD is in that area. I started my career planning to continue looking at ancient skeletons, archaeologically recovered materials. Actually, I wrote a short story called First Bones. It's in a a book of a collection of novellas called The Bone Collection. And it's Temperance Brennan's origin story, but it's actually my origin story also. She's in her lab one day. She's doing archaeological research with bones. And two cops show up and want her to help with a modern forensic case. And that's what happened with me. That's how I got into the forensic aspect of osteology, which is the basic core component is a knowledge knowledge of human human bones. Was that kind of was it jarring to go from like ancient to like modern or did you kind of seamlessly go into that? Um, I wouldn't say it was jarring. Uh, it was difficult. It was um, not even difficult. It was just different. And I had to do some retraining because there are every osteologist, every bioarchaeologist is not a forensic anthropologist. <clears throat> First of all, you have to be board certified. So I went back, I retrained, I took my boards and did uh, become a diplomate of the American Board of Forensic Anthropology. There are a lot of things in forensics you don't have to know about in bioarchaeology, like Oh, testifying in court and maintaining chain of custody of your evidence, that kind of thing. There's similarities in how you would process a death scene um, and how you would analyze the skeleton for basic information of age, sex, race, height, that sort of thing. But there are also big differences. This is like a current thing um, with the genetic genealogy that's just coming out. Have you had any um, divings into that only in that I've used that in writing the Temperance Brennan novels. I try to keep up, I do keep up with forensic science, with forensic anthropology in particular. I read the journals, I attend the American Academy of Forensic Sciences meetings. Um, I talk with colleagues every week. We have a, a meeting, online meeting of six women, forensic anthropologists. Um, so I like to keep up with the latest developments and that forensic gene. Forensic genetic genealogy is certainly one of them, but I haven't done that in investigation. I was going to have you kind of explain because a lot of people seem to think that pathology, right? And when you go to a death scene and um, the pathologist does the autopsy, a lot of people seem to think that that's the same thing as forensic anthropology and it's not. So I kind of wanted you to kind of explain those differences. A pathologist is a medical doctor with a specialty in um, death investigation. 
um, they've probably done six years of after medical school in, in uh, two different residencies. So they're a medical doctor and they work on a body that's fresh enough for a normal autopsy where they can take out the organs and the brain and, you know, cut the body up and <clears throat> make a Y incision and, you know, see what, what it is they're looking for. It could be they're looking for identity. It could be they're looking for manner or cause of death. <clears throat> the anthropologist is brought in in cases where that's no longer possible because the body's compromised it's burned or mutilated or decomposed or dismembered, or maybe it's just bones. So we come in to tease what information we can from the skeleton of that body. And how often can you actually find a cause of death on, on things that old? Yeah, we usually um, don't specifically do cause of death. We might do manner of death, which there are five. You know, it's, it's homicide, suicide, accidental, I'm missing one, undetermined. Um, yeah, so we might play into that. But the actual physiological process that led up to the reason the heart stopped beating and the lungs stopped pumping, we don't often make those statements. Um, if we, we analyze trauma, we look at gunshot wounds or um, sharp instrument trauma, stabbing, slicing. We look at evidence of strangulation. So we find that because it's in the bones. Um, and then we can make comments about what caused that and you know, perhaps allude to, to manner of death. Um, yeah, so I think that answered your question. We might also be asked to address uh, who it is, you know, identity, if it's a completely unknown, or if it's a suspected ID, a possible ID, they, they think it might be Jane Doe. We can confirm that what's known about Jane Doe is consistent with what we're seeing in the remains. Um, we might be asked to say something about the body treatment after death. You know, was it dismembered? Was it placed in a shallow grave, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, so those are other questions that we might address as an anthropologist using the bones and the circumstances around which the bones were found. Oh yeah, I think that's very important because I don't think a lot of people realize how much you can find from bones. I think they think mm -hmm. once it gets past a certain point, you know, it's just kind of, well, we're not going to figure anything out. So I think that's important. Thank you for saying that. Cause what is usually the point in which someone like you would be called in? Is it, um, like a certain amount of time? It depends on the jurisdiction and you, and in my case, I would come in, I would be called in by the pathologist, um, or maybe the coroner or the medical examiner directly. It would depend, you know, you might be called to go to the scene to help in recovery because pathologists aren't really trained in bones and they might not, and, and death investigators aren't always that good at finding every single bone and every single tooth. So the anthropologist might be brought in, asked to go to the crime scene to help with recovery. <clears throat> Sometimes we're brought in after the remains have arrived at the morgue and then, um, you know, we, we work on them either in our lab or down in a, in a morgue setting. But, and it's not a matter of time. It's a matter of <clears throat> condition of the remains. You know, if it's a fully intact body, you don't need an anthropologist, probably. You don't need an anthropologist. I ask because here in Oklahoma, it gets very hot. And so here we have a lot of it's like a quicker decomposition sort of situation and which is another thing we were going to ask you um how how quick does heat 
contribute to decomposition? Well, heat contributes, whether it's dry or, or humid. Heat definitely speeds up decomposition. But there are so many different factors that are, it's also very cold in Oklahoma part of the year, decomposition. So it depends on, is the body on the surface? Is it in the water? Is it in a shallow grave? Is it in a deep grave? Is it in acid soil? Is it in alkaline soil? Has something been placed in there to, you know, a chemical been placed in there to speed decomposition or retard decomposition? You know, it, it just all depends. That's really interesting. So if you, and and this is another thing too, um, we don't have a lot of authorities calling in people like you around here. Uh, Really, Tulsa is like at the forefront of doing that. And I mean, it used to be where it was just big things, you know, like we have the um, race riots that they're working on and stuff right now. Um, But now they're starting to do it where we had that couple that disappeared. Uh, actually it was a mother and a son and now they're starting to call out forensic anthropologists for that. Do you think that this is going to be uh, prevalent? Yeah. Job in the future that people should jump into right now? Well, I think there's much greater awareness of forensic anthropology than there used to be in the past. When I started plying my trade, I don't think anybody had ever heard of us. You know, we worked away in our labs and nobody really paid attention uh, or even knew what we were doing. Um, and I think that's that's a, true of forensic science in general. Somewhere back in the 90s, all of a sudden, people became very interested in forensics. Maybe it was the OJ trial. We saw, you know, 24-7, wall to wall. Who knows? We heard about blood spatter patterns, and we heard about knife trajectories and DNA and whatever. Uh, but from that point on, um, and maybe it, it was because... N- Maybe my books had something to do with it. You know, maybe down the road, the the 12 seasons of the TV series, Bones, you know, people, I think people have a pretty good idea now what forensic anthropologists do. But you're absolutely right. In the past, that was not the case. And as a result of that, I think they're being called in more and more. I think the medical examiners and the coroners uh, are now aware of the fact that, that they probably do need a forensic anthropologist in certain situations. We see, because you have been like all over the world to work all sorts of cases. Do you think that we need more people in the field? Pretty much each state does. That's, I'm sure there are gaps, geographic gaps, Um, but we're spread across the country. I think currently there are 110 of us who are currently board certified. And again, that's important because once forensic anthropology became sexy, once forensics became sexy, all of a sudden people started hanging out their shingles. I'm a chemist, so oh, I'll be a forensic chemist. I'm a psychologist, so oh, I'm a forensic psychologist. I'm a forensic anthropologist. There's a big difference, and that's the whole point of, of board certification is so that you know when you call an expert, you're getting, you know, you're getting the real deal. And that's important if your case is going to go to court and your expert's going to testify in court. Because if you don't have a board certified and opposing counsel does, that's not going to go well for you. One of the founding fathers of forensic anthropology, a man named Dr. Clyde Snow, was in Oklahoma, and he's one of the first people to bring awareness of forensic anthropology, and particularly in Clyde's case, in the realm of uh, human rights abuses and mass graves in, in Argentina and you know, the desaparecidos in, in, in Guatemala and places like that. So Clyde was, was from Oklahoma for a long time. I don't know if he was born there. He might have been. D- speaking of cool. teaching, do you teach? You do, don't you? 
Well, not anymore. Um, I'm focusing on writing these days, but I did teach for um, a long, long time. Let me just leave it that way. <laughs> I'm a professor at the University of North Carolina at the Charlotte okay. campus. I don't know who's in Oklahoma these days, but you could look it up. There's a website for the American Board of Forensic Anthropology, abfa.org, I think, and it tells you where everybody is. Experts should go to if, if, if they do need somebody. When you first started, like, have you ever been, like, quote, unquote, into true crime, or is this just always kind of been work for you? Uh, well, both. Um, I, my daughter and I will watch some true crime shows. Um, I guess just out of curiosity, the reason everybody else watches them. It's kind of a busman's holiday, I guess, when you watch. And normally when I turn one of those on, there's somebody on there that I, I know them. I often know the people involved in those. Back to the teaching thing, um, what would you, what would be some advice that maybe you would give to people who are thinking about getting into your career? It's a long haul. Uh, to be a real player, you have to have a PhD. And that means, you know, undergraduate and then get into a good graduate program. And then it's what, at least, what's the average, five years. And then I think you have to, it, for years, you had to practice under the mentorship of a board certified practitioner for three years and then sit for your exams. So it is a long haul and you need to be dedicated to it. There aren't that many of us. Most of us, or no, a lot of us work uh, at universities or museums or for the military and consult on the side. Um, there are growing numbers of full-time forensic anthropologists employed by medical examiners or coroner's uh, systems, but there aren't a huge number of positions uh, in the United States. But go for it. You know, if if you get fully qualified and board certified, the best will find will find um, will find employment. I think the biggest employer is uh, the military. I think they employ something like forty anthropologists out at the Central ID Lab out in Hawaii, and then there's another Central ID Lab for our. You know, we make a commitment to our service personnel, our troops that. If we send you overseas, we will find you and bring you home, alive or dead. So there are these full-time labs that do nothing but, you know, recover and identify our missing troops. So they, they're a huge employer of forensic anthropologists. I wrote, a, wrote about this in, in one of the Temperance Brennan books. Um, as, as far as a writer, I would say people often come up to me and say, I want to be a writer. What do you recommend? And I say, write. You have to write. You can't wait until the muses are with you or the mood is with you. You have to find that block of time, whether it's one hour every day or one day on the weekends or one month during the summer, whatever. You have to find a regular block of time and sit down at that keyboard because, you, you know, if, if you say, well, I'm not in the mood today, I don't have, you can't, you can't edit a blank page. You've got to create something. So I would say, to the would be the wannabe writers, you know, write, stick with it. Maybe join writers groups, share your work amongst a small group, critique each other. We have a lot of people that either don't write or have stopped writing because they get writer's block really bad. How do you deal with writer's block and how would you advise people on dealing yeah, with it? I don't allow myself writer's block. Just sit down and write something, produce something, put something on the screen, the page, whatever. And then you can always, you know, the next day you're in charge. You can always hit the delete key. Um, but you can't allow yourself to just say, well, I 
I've got nothing today. So we were talking about one of your very first books. I was also kind of wondering if that was your actual first book. I know you had Deja Dead, but did you write anything before that and it's just never been published and you just didn't, you didn't like it or anything like that? Or was that where you just started? No, that's where I started. Well, I did discover when I moved homes, I don't know, a few years ago that I wrote a couple books when I was like nine in longhand. One was a <laughs> Needless to say, they were hideous, but, um, and then I forgot about it. I, I, in university, I just wanted to be in the science labs, physiology, biology, zoology. I didn't want to take literature classes. So Deja Dad was the first attempt at fiction. A few things came together in 1994. I made full professor and uh, I had just fear, finished working on a serial murder case. And so I had the freedom to try something new. And I had a story idea. So that's when I decided I would write Deja Dead. Um, I, I started it in third person voice and it just wasn't working for me. I just, I put the manuscript away for a while. I came back to it. I thought this is boring. <clears throat> and I started over in first person voice. And that, that I really, that I got my groove. So from then on, I wrote all the Temperance Brennan books in the first, it was like I was telling my own story. When did you decide that you were going to start writing, that, this, that that's something that you wanted to do? Well, it was in 1994. Um, part of the motivation was that my kids were getting older and talking about going to private universities. And you may be aware that professors aren't overly well paid. So I, <laughs> and I had a colleague who was writing romance, Western romance novels oh, wow. straight back. And she was making a, you know, a tidy little sum on the side. So I thought, you know, I can, I read one and I thought, well, I can do this. <laughs> and as I said, I, I, I had just worked on this serial murder case with some very interesting elements. The dismemberment pattern was quite unique. So I thought yeah. I change all the details, the names, the places, the dates, of course, uh, for ethical and uh, legal reasons. And, but I had the, the basis of a story and I had the freedom to try something new. So and the motivation to maybe make a little money on the side. So that all came together in spring break of 94. And I sat down and I outlined um, Deja Dead. How long does it usually take you to write a book? I'm under contract for a book a year. So I produce oh, wow. a book every day. I have the luxury of being a full-time writer. I was doing that when I was teaching full-time university, the first couple books, and commuting between uh, and the Carolinas and... <clears throat> Uh, Quebec in in Canada doing forensic casework. So it was that was a busy time. That's when I think I learned to squeeze it into every free moment I had. Do you have any like what they would call writer's quirks where you like have to have a certain setting or a, a certain way that you do things, anything like that? Well, I write on a computer. Um, I have to have quiet. I can't write. My daughter's also a writer and she writes in you know, the JK Rowling thing. She goes to bookstores and uh, in, what do you call it? Coffee shops. And I can't do that. I have to be in my office where it's quiet. Um, I guess that's the only quirk that I have. Um, I'm a linear writer. I start with chapter one and then I do chapter two, three, four, five. My, my daughter also, if she's in a good mood, she writes the love scene. If she's in a bad mood, she writes the death scene. I can't do that. So um, <laughs> I'm not, uh, I outline a little bit maybe the first six or eight chapters. I'm not a plotter. I'm a pantser. Yeah. After I, 
six or eight chapters, I go by the seat of my pants. I know where it's going. Um, I know how it will end, but I pretty much do it um, free, freestyle after that point. Well, that's really great, though, because especially for other authors out there who are maybe just getting started when they think that they have to do it a certain way. I mean, obviously, you don't. No. <laughs> you don't have to outline. You don't have to, I mean, just write. Like you just said, just write. First, for the first book, when I was less sure what I was doing, I'm still not sure what I'm doing, um, I did more of an outline for the book. And I do a post-mortem outline. As I finish each chapter, I then add it to an outline. So by the time I finish the book, I do have an outline. So okay. that if I back, I can sh- I know exactly what happened in what in what chapters. So it's like very retroactive. Oh. Like you finish one and then you add it to the outline. That's also a very interesting way to do things. Well, and that's more my thinking. So mm-hmm. that's I would probably do very well in doing that. Thank you because yeah. that's how I think too. What do you think is the most difficult part of the writing process? I guess the discipline to when you're not in the mood. I'm at my beach house right now, and all my kids are down on the beach. After the hurricane moved through, it was Wednesday. It's just beautiful out there now. But I'm sitting at my computer, and I'm writing. So that's hard sometimes, the discipline to, to stick with it. But then you can feel very self-righteous and smug when you finally close down the computer. <laughs> And you've gotten you've gotten all that work done. Yeah, mm-hmm. I uh, I just I finished the Bone Hacker. Um, I have read a few of your books. I haven't actually been very uh, linear about. It. I never started with the first one, but I also think that that's a very interesting way because you have this way of writing where you don't necessarily have to read each one of them to know what's going on, and it, it kind of makes it even more interesting when you go back and you're like, oh, that's what Tempe was doing you know, back in, you know, Deja Dead or whatever. And so I did notice, though, that you said you, that you have put a lot of things into your books that um, maybe you've dealt with personally. Um, but the interesting part that I thought is, do you have a plot that comes to you first? Do you just, like, see something and you're like, oh, my gosh, that would be so interesting in a book? Or do you kind of come up with side characters first and kind of follow them and see where they go. It, it's hard to say what comes first. It's, it's like minestrone soup. I have bits and pieces of things that begin to float around. Um, setting, I, I choose the setting pretty early. Uh, and she's gotten around, as you pointed out. Well, I, because I've gotten around. She, I never write about a place I haven't been. So Tempe has been to Guatemala. She's been to Afghanistan, because I went to Afghanistan on a USO tour. She's been to the Northwest Territories. She's been where? Um, anyway, she the you know, the maritime provinces of, of Canada. She's been to Israel. But anyway, um, I, so setting begins early in the process. And then the idea behind the crime comes next. And that's often comes from a case I've worked on. Uh, sometimes it's what we used to call in the writer's room for Bones, um, ripped from the headlines. It's something I've read in, in the newspaper or seen on, on the TV or whatever. Um, and that's the case for the bone hacker. I read an article, an expose in the New York Times about, by uh, Ronan Farrow and a co-author about NSO and a spyware called Pegasus, which is a very powerful spyware. It's a no-click spyware. It can be placed on an individual's phone without them having to click on anything. It's not like they accidentally 
invited it in by downloading something else. And it can be used to spy on individual citizens. And uh, the it was developed in Israel, and it's been purchased by a number of governments around the world. And the U.S. government was thinking of buying Pegasus, ultimately decided not to. But I started thinking, well, there's a scary thought that someone, what if some villain, some nefarious person, developed a spyware that he could hack in to your personal devices. Which is pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where the idea for the bone hacker came from. You have a very long running series. So do you ever like want to, do you ever stop and go, man, I want to write something about different, just not have anything to do with this. Or do you find joy in continuing, um, Tempe's journey, we should say? Um, I still enjoy her. I still enjoy writing her. Um, I'm under contract for, I'm not working on book number 23, The Bone Hacker is book 22 in the series. So I'm well along in book, not as far as I should be, but don't tell my uh, publisher, uh, book 23. So, but we've discussed the possibility of book 24 being, being something different, maybe creating a new character. Um, I like the idea of having a minor character in this book and maybe blowing that up into the main protagonist in another book. So, you know, I have thought about that possibility. Over the course of the series, we have lost characters. How do you determine who's going to go and who's going to stay? You know, I don't often don't think that through in advance. Um, That is often something that just comes to me as I'm sitting at the keyboard and I think, I'm going to kill him (laughs) or I'm going to kill her. I actually really feel like um, that's the truth because in your writing, I'll just say you flesh out every character as if they are going to be around for years and years and years. And then, oop, there it goes. Well, that's part of that suspense. (laughs) I mean, that's part of that, you know, thinking you know someone and then they're just gone. And and I'm going to, I'm not going to lie, there's some characters that I have found very fascinating and wanted to stay around for a while. of someone dying or being killed surprises me, then it's probably going to surprise the reader. And that's my job, you're a writer, um, is to surprise my reader, not just with the ending. Certainly you want that. You want them not to see that coming. When I read a thriller and I predict the ending, I'm disappointed in the writer. Um, so I figure if something surprises me along the way, it's probably going to be a twist that, that uh, surprises my readers also. What do you think is a big difference in maybe writing a standalone book and writing a series? Uh, one of the difficulties you asked earlier about of writing a series is you have to, that book, The Bone Hacker, may be the very first Temperance Brennan book that a reader has picked up. That may be the 22nd book in the series that a reader has picked up. So for that first time reader, you have to reintroduce your main premise your main characters, but you have to do it in a way that you don't bore your returning reader. Um, and, and I don't want to do it in just straight narrative because that's, that's not nearly to me as, as interesting. So I've done it by, oh gosh, I don't know. One book opens, she's sitting in a faculty meeting. You'll identify with this. She's bored to death. So she starts writing, she starts writing her own autobiography. One book starts out, she's on the stand. Uh, testifying 
and she, um, you know, is being cross-examined by opposing counsel, and that brings out who she is and what she does and the, the premise of forensic anthropology. So you have to constantly come up with new and different ways um, to do that, and that, that can be challenging. But you had mentioned um, the show, you know, Bones, and you were a producer on that. What do you think the difference is between writing your books? And I'm sure that a lot of this is, you know, creativity. Um, but but writing the show and writing a script for, you know, television. Yeah, and I did write for the show. Um, first of all, a script boils down largely to dialogue. You don't have to put any description in there because the viewer sees that. They see that it's a dark and stormy night. They see what the character is wearing and, you know, what she looks like. So it really boils down to, for our show, which is 42 minutes, whatever a one-hour show is, 44 minutes, 42, you know, it would be like 60 pages. They're very, very brief. So that's one difference. Another difference is you um, you, ha- you, you, you do what's called breaking the story. You go into the writer's room and collectively you just brainstorm, excuse me, you throw out ideas and there's a big whiteboard and it's empty at the beginning. By the end of a week or so, you have an outline, you have a rough outline. You then have to pitch that to the showrunner. And then when you finally write the script, they change all kinds of things. And I'm not used to that with the books. Um, Yeah. So we just want to kind of wrap up with maybe giving us a synopsis of the new one, The Bone Hacker, um, which is out now. You can get that wherever you get your books. Um, I got mine. Actually, I have two of them. I've got it in hardback and I've got it on Audible. And I do want to mention your girl who does the narration is absolutely fantastic. She does like a million different accents, a million different, like she's just, she's really great. So shout out to her for, for that. Linda Emmons. She's been with us for 12 books, maybe more. Oh, wow. Wow. That's a lot. Starts out in Montreal. Uh, A man is seemingly struck by lightning, falls off the Jacques Cartier bridge into the St. Lawrence river. And Tempe is asked to help identify his body. She links him by a tattoo which she runs, she has someone run through the FBI tattoo database, and it links them to the Turks and Caicos Islands, to a gang down there. So she calls down, and the detective insists on coming to Montreal. Tempe tells her, you don't have to do that. That's not, no, no. So she comes to Montreal. Her motives are, um, she has ulterior motives. She persuades Tempe to go with her back to the Turks and Caicos because they have a serial murderer operating someone who's targeting young male tourists and killing them and hacking off their left hand. While she's there, the FBI becomes involved in the investigation and it turns out that there is cyber cyber crime going on. Someone is hacking into computer systems and networks. See what I'm doing there with the hacker? It's a double Mm -hmm. (laughs) entendre. Yeah, that's enough to tell you about the plot. I will say, so... You have some very colorful characters in this one. Um, I love the investigator that initially goes to get her. She's is one of my favorites. <laughs> and then you have this other um, this other doctor that man. And this is this is what I wanted to ask you about. Is it difficult writing characters that you want people to maybe? Uh, get scruffed up against or maybe not 
initially like? Is that a, is that difficult? Oh, that's so much fun. And one of the things I do in the books is introduce humor. And that's one of the things we did with the TV show too. We really wanted to put humor. And that's a hard, that's a delicate balancing act because every show, every book deals with violent death. So how do you put humor in there? And one of the main ways I do that is through dialogue. And especially if it's, it could be Tempe and Ryan who are sparring with each other or more fun is Tempe and someone like Skinny Slidell or somebody in the book, the current book that, you know, they kind of, there's tension there. There's, there's, uh, they kind of grate on each other's nerves. So that, that's fun to me. I like writing that dialogue. I sometimes sit and laugh at my own stuff, you know? I almost feel like um, with this monk character, like I almost feel like you have known one, two, maybe three of these guys in the past. And it's really funny because you speak of that humor. Some of that humor comes out right then because you're like, oh, okay, well, you just tell me then. <laughs> it's very interesting. I like creating that kind of a dynamic between two characters. And the show shows that a lot too. Yes, yeah. It really it does. does. It has it has really good balance between seriousness, but you know that sparring kind of funny dialogue. My mom is watches every show you've ever had. I mean, she knows every character and every so she was she was really excited that we were going to talk with you today because she's watched every single episode. So shout yeah. out to your mom. Hodgins was our go to for that too. He was. Hilarious. And speaking of that balancing act, now, I mean, you obviously write about some very hardcore stuff. Mm -hmm. Like this is, it's life and death. And you, I think you do a really good job of where you put that humor in. Because Mm -hmm. obviously it's, it's difficult when you have to keep it light in certain places and then you know go back to that darkness I'm sure that you have found that in your real life as well like you kind of have to keep some humor over here you know separated so that you can deal with that dark stuff and there is you know you hear about gallows humor or black humor that cops use in at an autopsy or where and it's a tension breaker it's a the only situation where that doesn't happen, I have found in my experience, is if it's a child autopsy or a child hunt, then it's absolutely dead quiet. But otherwise, the cops are, they're usually cracking wise. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of their, you know, I always say it's kind of a coping mechanism. Yeah. Because if you can't, if you cannot talk through it and you can't process it, you're going to compartmentalize it. Oh, yeah. And so. Yeah. Yeah, I come from a, um, a family of first responders and my husband is even a paramedic and like, they all have that. You have to have that sort of sense of humor to, to make it through what you're doing. Um, and, and that's another thing is, have you ever been told at any point, now it's not for me, so at, at all, I, I love the stuff that you put in the book, but have you ever been told that maybe you give too much detail or, you know, cause like you're, you kind of go through these findings and stuff like that. Have you ever been told maybe it's too macabre? Not really. My editor might say, you know what, we're a little heavy on this. Let's cut that uh, part. Or sometimes they say, you know what, you really need to elaborate. I didn't get, you know, why the guy's kidney exploded or whatever it was. (laughs) (laughs) So that can go either way. That's a balance you have to understand. And I think scientists, um, professors often, 
who write books, they love their subject. And so they want to put all that precious material in there. And you can't do that. Um, you have to keep the science accurate, yes, but you have to keep it brief and you have to keep it jargon free. We can't use any of the special terminology as experts we use among ourselves. So I think that's my kind of three-way rule of thumb when putting the science in, make it accurate, but keep it brief and make it entertaining. It's kind of the same, okay, so it's kind of the same skills you use to address a jury. You don't want to dumb it down, but you want to keep their attention and you want them to understand it. You do have a really good balance. Yes, you do. Yeah. Um, So final question, how do you celebrate when you finish a book? Mm. Usually by starting another one, Um, (laughs) we travel. (laughs) I like to take the family. Um, We just, I just took all my kids and grandkids to Africa for three weeks. And um, we've taken them to, I've taken them to um, Ireland. Last year, we we all went to Ireland for two weeks because I'm Irish. I'm my heritage. And earlier, we've taken them to Latvia because my husband is Latvian. You know, so that's one thing. As a family, we love to travel together. That's so so strange because for some reason, we're like number two on the Latvia charts. (laughs) I don't know why. We are. Yes. I. But yeah, that's that's awesome. So like you do you like is that all you do or do you like secretly like crack some champagne and you're like, oh, yes, I did it again. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. yeah I'm, a, you know, <laughs> I'm not tempted by any means. I definitely like my wine. So, <laughs> well, uh, congratulations yes. again on, an, on another book. I loved it. It was fantastic. I suggest everyone get out there, even if you haven't read any of them. Why not start now? Um, You really don't need, you don't have to. I will say that you will want to, but you don't have to read the rest of the books. Um, So congratulations on a new book. I know. We hope to see you here the same time next year for another Tempe book. Fire and Bones next summer. I'm already ready for that one. I know, me too. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Enjoy the holiday. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Raven's Reviews. Catch more next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?